The only two possibilities that protect our democracy are A, we have changed the rules so that they can't destroy it. So we've shored it up with institutional reforms, which has not happened. Or B, the Republican Party is no longer authoritarian. And the only way that happens is if the Republicans get wiped out in repeated landslides, not close elections, but like absolute landslides, where it becomes clear that authoritarianism will keep them out of power for perpetuity. And because that hasn't happened, and because the first option hasn't happened, you know, it's just sort of a, a countdown. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, we are joined by one of my favorite political scientists working right now, Brian Kloss. Brian is an expert on authoritarianism. He is the Associate Professor of Global Politics at University College London, and he is really good at distilling insights into authoritarianism and Trumpism, both into tweets that he posts on Twitter, but also into his substack, which is called The Garden of Forking Paths. He had a really strong piece last week on how Trump could win in 2024 that we talk about. Uh, we also talk a little bit about Trump's CNN town hall and why that's a bad omen for coverage of the 2024 campaign more broadly. And we also talk a little bit about Brian's past life as the deputy campaign manager for a successful governor's candidate here in Minnesota back in 2010 and lessons that he takes from that that he would apply if he was advising Biden in Biden's 2024 run. A reminder that new episodes of the podcast drop every Thursday morning. Uh, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also subscribe to my YouTube page and uh, be sure to like the footage on YouTube if you're watching it there and spread the word about the podcast by sharing episodes as um, I'm trying to get the word out. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Brian. All right. Welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. I'm really excited today to be joined by Brian Kloss, who is the Associate Pre Associate Professor of Global Politics at the University College London, and like me, a Minnesotan. Um, so thank you for making some time today to join the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it seems like we are amid another week here in the U.S. of all Trump all the time in terms of the news cycle with yesterday Trump being found liable of sexual abuse and defamation and ordered to pay $5 million to E. Jean Carroll as a result of that. Um, tonight, we have a town hall on CNN um, featuring uh, Donald Trump, which is kind of a controversial event for all of the obvious reasons. And maybe that's actually a good place to start. I mean, what, do you have any thoughts on CNN having this event with Trump? You know, definitely based on the promos that they have been doing. Um, it seems like it's going to be kind of a soft focus event featuring Republican primary voters in New Hampshire, who last year, of course, nominated an election denier for a U.S. Senate seat. So, you know, it's a very Trumpy party up there in New Hampshire. Um, what are your thoughts kind of heading into this? And do you have any plans to watch it? Uh, I don't have any plans to watch it, but mainly that's because it's at like two in the morning, uh, my time. But the uh, my, my main takeaway is that we have learned literally nothing. Um, eight years of Trump being a major force in American politics, and there has been so little adaptation to understanding that he's a unique politician who doesn't fit the mold of standard Republican politics and therefore therefore cannot be treated as a normal political force in American politics. I mean, I, I've written for a long time about how the media should be objective rather than trying to be balanced. And I think that's one important thing to, to point out. That it's not about, you know, they said uh, versus, you know, he said versus he said. That's not appropriate journalism. But also, as a more deep point, that the media should have precisely one bias, and that is a pro-democracy bias. And in that regard, I think that the media should accurately label Trump as what he is, which is an authoritarian threat to, to um, American democracy. 
uh, an existential threat to the Republic and not put him in a position where people who are frankly deluded um, by some of his lies, which are going to be Republican primary voters, are the ones asking the questions. It's just irresponsible. And to do it the day after he was uh, found liable for, for sexual assault, I mean, just really underscores the grotesqueness of looking at Trump through the prism of entertainment rather than uh, through the prism of authoritarian threats to democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And as you talk about the threat that Trump represents, um, you had a very sobering piece in your Substack just last week, which I highly recommend called The Garden of Forking. Uh, no, excuse me. Uh, with, clarify right. the name of your Substack. I, I got tongue twisted there on that. <laughs> It's the Garden of Forking Paths. It's a okay. uh, it's a reference to a short story about all the different paths we take through the world, and and how we get to the places that we want to go. And I, and I knew that, but it was one of those ones where, as I started saying it, I was like, "Wait, this does not sound right." As I'm saying this, so I'm glad you could clarify that. But uh, this piece about how Trump could win um, kind of makes the case about why people need to take this campaign seriously. Um, you in this piece, kind of lay out the difference between, as you describe them, the land of normal politics and the land of authoritarian politics. Why is that distinction important? And why is that framework helpful for understanding this third Trump presidential run that we're now living in the midst of here? Yeah, so I think it's useful for me to give like a very brief preamble of how I ended up analyzing Trump, which is that I left U.S. politics. I worked in Minnesota. Uh, and I worked in campaigns. And then I decided to get my PhD at the University of Oxford studying authoritarianism. And I went all around the world and studied authoritarian regimes. And I studied the breakdown of democracy, right, in, in a variety of different countries, uh, living in them for several months at a time, meeting with, you know, generals, presidents, dictators, this sort of thing. And then in 2015, Trump rose in America. And the story of the last eight years, to my mind, is that the entire pundit class in America including news hosts, journalists, op-ed writers, et cetera. Uh, all of them have been deeply, deeply schooled in the land of normal American politics. In other words, if you wanted to have a trivia contest about various sort of uh, weird things that happened in American history, these are the people who will know all the answers, right? But what they have not done and what they have spent almost no time doing is thinking about how other countries operate. And that's because the reward system are not there. If you're a White House correspondent, you know, you occasionally might fly into another country very briefly, but your, your incentives are to learn America. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, virtually nobody who is commenting on American politics understands that we have seen this film before, right? In other words, this is not a totally new phenomenon. We can learn from other countries that have faced an authoritarian populist demagogue who has re relentlessly attacked democracy and slowly killed it. And to me, this great divide that I, I highlight in the piece between the land of normal politics and the land of authoritarian politics is the difference between understanding Trump and misunderstanding Trump. And, you know, at the risk of immodesty, I will say that I've had a reasonably good track record when I have made predictions. I mean, I wrote a piece in The Washington Post, uh, which you can look up from May of 2020, in which I effectively predicted January 6th would happen. Um, I, I, I talk all about how in between the election and the inauguration, there is going to be an outbreak of violence that Trump incites because he's going to say that the deep state stole the election from him. And that's not because I'm some clairvoyant. It's because I have seen how this playbook operates everywhere else in the world. And the second you use the right framework to understand Trump, which is that he's an authoritarian populist, all the stuff starts to fall into place. Right. If you look at the land of normal politics nothing makes sense. The guy gets convicted or found liable of sexual assault and he goes up in the polls. That makes no sense in the Republican Party of the 1990s. It 
makes complete sense in every single authoritarian style movement that I have studied around the world. So you, you have to use the right frame of reference. And my worry, again, is that repeatedly we are making the same errors that we made in 2016 because nobody has learned, nobody has been intellectually curious enough to think about what can we learn from other countries. And that's a feature of American political journalism in general, but I think it's particularly dangerous when so much can be learned uh, in this extremely perilous moment for our democracy. Yeah. And, and what are some of the similarities you see between modern U.S. politics with Trumpism being at the core of the GOP? And, you know, very disturbingly, of course, over the weekend, there was new polling from The Washington Post and ABC that actually has Trump ahead outside of the, arg- uh, the margin of error against Biden. And of course, you know, there's a lot of caveats that come with that. But um, you know, kind of underscoring how serious this threat is that he could return to the White House. Um, what trends do you see bes- between our politics here and other teetering democracies that you have studied? Yeah, so there's a lot of them. I mean, th- there's the obvious ones, right? So authoritarian populists always attack the press, um, you know, calling the press the enemy of the people, targeting them with malicious uh, speech online, images of them being attacked and so on, um, inciting violence against the jur- against journalists. Um, you have the constant lies, right? The The sort of standard operation of authoritarian populists is to try to degrade independent source of, sources of truth. So that's why you attack the press. And then you lie and create an alternative reality so that anything that you do that's corrupt, which is another feature, um, ends up being absolved by your supporters because they believe it's fake. And so this distortion of reality then feeds into another tactic, which is going against the uh, judiciary, trying to politicize it deliberately. I mean, everything we heard about uh, Trump's you know, finding of being liable for sexual assault yesterday was about the Clinton judge or the biased court system, right? It, it's the culmination of a very long process to make everyone who supports Trump be suspicious of independent sources of veracity like, like the judiciary, uh, for mm. example. So all of these things are, are in common. There's lots of other things, nepotism, corruption. I mean, obviously the nepotism with Ivanka and, uh, and Jared was pretty egregious. As well as sort of the fawning over authoritarian leaders abroad. Um, And this has sort of um, inserted itself into the GOP as a whole, where they have somebody like Viktor Orban, who I would say is probably the closest parallel to Trump, um, the leader of Hungary, who is uh, now, you know, sort of touted by Republicans and invited to be a keynote speaker at CPAC, right? So this is not sort of done in the shadows. It's very, very open what they're doing. Now, how does this manifest itself in Trumpian politics? Well, one, I would say, is the cult of personality. And this is something that I think a lot of people misunderstand because they just sort of say like, oh, yeah, it's like a cult. And this causes Republicans to say, oh, my gosh, the Democrat is being a crazy, you know, sort of extremist and making this this, uh, you know, turn of language. And the Democrat who uses the, the term it's a cult doesn't really think about what that actually means. And what it actually means in authoritarian cults of personality is that you set up a worldview in which the sort of true believers are pitted against the sort of fair weather fans, to use a sports analogy. And the way that you sort of separate them out is by ex- increasingly extreme lies. And the lies that you buy into have some social costs outside of the movement, right? So if you if you were one of the people who said, yes, this was the biggest crowd on Inauguration Day back in you know January 20th, 2017, that was the first lie. And they got much, much crazier uh, over time. So then you start to think about like QAnon, right? And QAnon has some serious social costs. Like if you become a QAnon member... Uh, or, or or at least a supporter of QAnon, you peddle QAnon on your Facebook page, your relatives see it, that has social costs. And then that creates even more strong social glue within the movement, 
because all the other people who are still part of it have also imposed social costs on the sort of non-Trumpian part of their lives. Now, what that means in practice is that you then make your identity being part of this member uh, only group, right? And you signal it. So there's a reason why we don't see Biden hats and bumper stickers that show Joe Biden riding an eagle, you know, on the back of people's cars in America. It's because the dynamics are totally different, right? Whereas the way you signal that you're a full-fledged true believer in the MAGA movement is you adorn yourself with Trump memorabilia. The red hat is a stroke of genius. This exists in lots of other authoritarian movements around the world. But because they've already bought into so many crazy lies and so much outlandish, despicable behavior, the breaking point becomes higher, right? Like it it becomes impossible for someone to say, well, I didn't jump ship after all this stuff. So now I will today. You know, the the costs have been raised so much that it creates this cohesion. And that's why I have always been very skeptical of those who say that Trump was toast after the midterms or, you know, anything about how these investigations are going to sink him as well. So there's a series of things that are parallels with authoritarian movements. And the sooner we as a nation wake up to this, the sooner we can use the right remedies rather than the wrong ones, which are thinking this is just a normal system where we give a politician a CNN town hall and so on. Right. And that would probably also explain why the support for Trump among Republicans didn't really erode after even January 6th occurred. Um, You know, there was that brief moment in January 2021 that, you know, seemed to um, kind of end with the push for his second impeachment, where it did seem like Kevin McCarthy was doing House speeches, distancing himself a little bit from Trump. Lindsey Graham was doing that. Um, but the wagons were circled pretty quickly. And, you know, I think part of that probably had to do with some of these Republicans realizing that Trump was still more popular with their base voters than they are. And so all it would take would be one nasty true social post. So I don't think true social existed at that time. But, you know, Trump blasting them at a rally or something like that, you know, endorsing a primary challenger. And that could be the end for them. Um, but, you know, is that do you think that's kind of, is that kind of consistent with your understanding of what happened post January 6th that um, kind of the the cult dynamics you were describing sort of held or how do we make sense of Trump, you know, not losing the support of elected Republicans even after um, inciting a coup attempt? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the base is the tail that wags the dog in American politics for the Republican Party. So basically what I mean by that is that in a normal political system, right, you have people who are setting the agenda in power. And I think that's increasingly not true in the U.S. I think that the base is actually an agenda setter in the Republican Party. And the reason that has happened, in my view, is primarily because of our broken system of gerrymandering, uncompetitive districts and primaries. So, you know, when you actually crunch the numbers um, and look at gerrymandered districts in the United States, you're talking about a few dozen that are actually competitive uh, out of the 435 races in the House each year. And the average margin of victory in most House elections is somewhere, depending on the year, between 65 and 75 percent of the vote. In other words, you're looking usually at sort of a 70, 30, um, uh, sorry, a a 40 percent margin with usually the winner getting between 65 and 75 percent of the vote in the average House race. So it's a landslide. Almost all the elections in the U.S. House are landslides. Now, what that means is that practically The only way to lose your seat if you're a Republican in the overwhelming majority of districts, this is true for Democrats in a lot of districts as well, is by compromising with the other party, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're in like an 80% red district, then you will never, ever lose a general election. But you can lose a primary. And this is where the cult dynamics feed into this in a particularly corrosive way. Because if you've got an 80% support in the Republican Party in your district, 
And of those people, an overwhelming majority are members of the authoritarian cult of personality around Trump. Then the only way you lose is by crossing Trump. And that's what we saw, I think, after January 6th, was that like the elites in the Republican Party privately loathe Trump and also think he's a disaster for their electoral prospects. And they think he's strategically very, very stupid. But they know that they will lose their own seats and quite possibly become pariahs a la Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney if they even criticize him a bit. So that's why the January 6th snapback took so little time. I mean, Lindsey Graham, what was it, like a week? Um, Kevin McCarthy yeah. became Trump's lapdog, you know, days after. So these are the kind of things where the structural forces that used to work in our democracy are being co-opted by the corrosive dynamics of authoritarian politics to make everything much worse. And that's why democratic reform is so important, because if you had the primary system get fixed, then the base would no longer have a stranglehold on the party and you could have mavericks break against Trump and not suffer immediate political death, <laughs> which is basically what you yeah. need to have. Right? You need to have um, somebody be able to survive politically after they take on Trump. And right now, that's not the case. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how Democrats have been responding to the threat represented by Trump and just the, you know, uh, the erosion of our democracy more broadly. Um, when you and I talked in September 2021 for a Q&A that ended up being the very first edition of my newsletter, Public Notice, um, you said this, quote, unless there is action taken by Democrats in this short window where they have control over everything legislatively plus the White House, I think the prospects for American democracy over the medium term are quite dim, end quote. Um, we've come out of this era now, obviously, with Republicans controlling the House. How do you think that two year window went? Um, and do you think the actions, you know, obviously there wasn't any sort of major voting rights legislation passed. But how do you assess those two years where Democrats did have control over Congress and the White House? And um, do you think they, you know, in any meaningful way set us up for success going forward? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still rather pessimistic, to be honest. And I think what I would have liked to see is Democrats playing a lot more hardball to protect democracy. Um, I, I think that basically, you know, there has been a standard set by Republican machinations in the legislative branch. I mean, Mitch McConnell is very, very good at this, um, where they sort of play games. I mean, the Supreme Court is the most obvious example. They sort of violate the spirit of democracy, but follow the letter of it. The only time I think that that is okay is to do so to protect democracy. And I wish that the Democrats had fought very, very hard, um, exploiting every possible procedural loophole they could have in order to shore up the institutions of our, of our system. And they haven't really done that. Um, and so my read of the situation now is that, yeah, I mean, Democrats by winning and by not losing complete control in the midterms and so on have protected democracy, no question, right? I mean, we, we would be in a drastically worse position if 2020 had gone differently, if 2022 had gone differently. But I also see these elections as holding patterns, unfortunately. In other words, the second that Republicans get unified control, which is, you know, in a two-party system, it's inevitable it will happen at some point. The only two possibilities that protect our democracy are, A, we have changed the rules so that they can't destroy it. So we've shored it up with institutional reforms, which has not happened or B, the Republican Party is no longer authoritarian. And the only way that happens is if the Republicans get wiped out in repeated landslides, not close elections, but like absolute landslides, where it becomes clear that authoritarianism will keep them out of power for perpetuity. And because that hasn't happened, and because the first option hasn't happened, you know, it's just sort of a, a countdown in, in, in my very worried view, right? Which is, um, yeah. At some point, it will happen. There will be unified control of Republican um, Republicans in the White House and, and both parties in 
uh, both houses of Congress as well as the Supreme Court, which is sort of a given for the next couple of decades. So, you know, it's a bit bleak. That being said, you know, 2024, 2026, 2028, they could all be fine in terms of sort of this holding pattern as long as there's not unified control. So that's what you have to avoid with absolute certainty is that you do not give all three to Republicans in this authoritarian movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's conceivable that Trump could lose to Biden in 2024 and be the Republican nominee again in 2028. I mean, I would not rule that out. You know, maybe it would be, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or someone who's kind of the, you know, the the, um, inheritor of that legacy or Don Jr. or someone like that. But, you know, I I think the the hold that he has over the Republican Party really shouldn't be discounted where, you know, if it ends up being another close election, we could see the same dynamics hold, um, you know, unless, like you mentioned, it's it's a wipeout wipeout situation where it becomes undeniable that this is a losing brand of politics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think it is possible that uh, Trump has staying power in the party um, probably indefinitely. Until, you know, yeah. as long as he's alive and an active force in Republican politics, he will warp Republican politics. So, you know, I, I think that's the thing where I hope there is a wake up moment. But, you know, when when we spoke um, for that first edition of, of Public Notice, Aaron, it was, you know, it was like seven or eight months after uh, January 6th. And what I think I said at the time, and I, I was saying this elsewhere, if I didn't say it to you, was that. I thought something like January 6th would be the breaking point, right? I thought something mm-hmm. like the pandemic would be the breaking point. We're like, because very often in authoritarian movements, the sort of moment that the spell breaks is when reality uh, conflicts with the lies that the uh, you know autocratic populace is, is saying. And so when a million people died from COVID, from a botched response, and you had a literal insurrection, I mean, naive me, this is, this is one thing I was definitely wrong about, <laughs> Naive me thought, okay, this will be enough, right? And it wasn't. And, and and that led to the question of like, what is it? Like, what could it be? If it's, a, if it's not a million people and a literal attack on the Capitol, you know, what, what would cause the break? And I, I don't know. I mean, I literally don't know. That, that's the thing that's so terrifying. Um, sexual assault, uh, you know, liability doesn't cause a break. Him going yeah. to jail, I don't think would cause a break. So at some yeah. point you have to sort of say, well, I think we got to deal with this person because he's not going to go away from his base. And and that's the real right. the, the real nub of the issue in the end. And that and also we're so polarized as a country that the prospect of Trump losing in a landslide seems pretty implausible. I mean, you know, even in the worst case for him, he probably ends up getting, you know, between 40 and 42 percent or so of the of the popular vote. And so. Um, the mechanism that you outlined of, you know, Republicans just being wiped out and learning lessons from that seems like it would be um, it's a it's a pretty it's it's a tightrope back for Democrats because that it the 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 polarization just doesn't lend itself to those sorts of outcomes. Um, but you in a previous life were working in politics, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, you were deputy campaign manager for Mark Dayton's successful run for governor back in 2010 before uh, you went the road of scholarship and becoming a political scientist. Uh, but drawing from your experiences as a successful Democratic campaign manager, deputy campaign manager, if you were advising Biden heading into this 2024 run uh, what would you advise him to do in terms of strategy and messaging? I mean, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm inferring from some of your comments that you would probably have him emphasize the authoritarian threat and kind of the stakes of Republicans possibly returning to the White House. Or, you know, it'll probably end up being Trump, who is the nominee at this point. But um, again, like how, how would you if you were if you were made into a, a Biden advisor for a day, what would you tell him about this upcoming presidential run? 
Yeah, I think there's a few things I would say. Um, and, and this is, you know, these are lessons that I learned on the campaign trail. And there are things that I think are too often forgotten by Democrats. And the two of them are vision and understanding what a political schema is. Um, and those will, will guide your, your thinking. So when it comes to vision, what I think the Biden administration needs to do is to sketch out what it will look like in 2028, right? I, I think Democrats fall into the trap. Be, many of them who craft messages are people who think along politics as policy and facts. And I think it's a misunderstanding. I'll explain a little bit more about this in my second point about schemas, but I think it's a misunderstanding of how campaigns operate. Campaigns are built among sort of impressionistic visions of what America will look like if you vote for me, right? And and I think that there's, uh, these have to be very simple. I mean, frankly, it's, 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 you know, I wish democracy was a bit more in the weeds, but it's not. So you have to be a bit more simple. You have to focus on a couple big points and you have to make sure that everybody in the country knows here's the three things Biden stands for, right? I, I think that kind of messaging is what I would, uh, would, would emphasize. Like these are the things that we're gonna focus on and we're just gonna repeat them over and over and over. Revisions, right? I don't know exactly what those should be. The Biden, the Biden team should think about it, obviously. Um, but I, I think that that has been missing a bit. Um, mm. The second thing I would say is, is understanding what a political schema is. And this is uh, drawing from neuroscience and memory uh, research and so on. Uh, wh- one of the ways I describe this is, you know, what we basically do when we process information is we sort of filter out an impressionistic image of what we've just seen or what we've just been exposed to. That my, my favorite experiment, I wrote a piece on my Substack called Schemas in the Political Brain, which people can check out if they're interested in this. But I had this little experiment people can do, sit down with a piece of paper and try to draw a $5 bill from memory. It will go catastrophically wrong. You've seen it thousands of times. Mm. You can immediately recognize it and you don't know what it looks like when you actually have to reproduce it. And that's because our brains have these sort of very, very uh, crude shortcuts. Now, the reason I say this for politics is because this is why things like the gas stove discourse is ridiculous. I saw one of your very funny tweets, uh, Aaron, about joining the appliance army or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. On behalf Biden's of the war on appliances. Yeah, yes, that, exactly. That was the Fox the, the News yeah. But this, this stuff works, right? And the reason it works is because it just becomes the mantra for people who do not live and breathe policy, which is the overwhelming majority of citizens, to say Biden's the guy who wants to take away our, away our way of life. He's so bad, he's going to take away our gas stoves. Now, it doesn't matter if it's true, right? It becomes the image of Biden to these people. He's attacking our way of life. That thing gets attacked, attached rather to their identity. So it's he's attacking our identity. He's not like us, you know, this sort of thing. And this is where I think Democrats often drastically underperform Republicans. I mean, even things like, you know, pro-life is a very good slogan. I, I think it's, a, you know, I, I don't agree with it, but it's a very, very yeah. good slogan. And so what I wish Democrats would do is focus on the big picture a bit more, both with vision and with understanding how to label people the way that Trump did um, really, really crudely and effectively and just relentlessly hit it, right? Hit the same messages over and over and over. Um, you know, I personally think if, if, I, if, if, uh, if I were advising Biden on this front, I would just call it the crazy party. I just call the, the modern GOP the crazy party. And I don't mean this in a way that is trying to denigrate Republicans of all stripes, because there's a lot of non-crazy Republicans. But the current incarnation of the Republican Party with Marjorie Taylor Greene as one of its most prominent spokespeople is crazy. And most people understand that, I think, outside of that cult. Right. So just, you know, just just start talking this way. Start. To, this is absolute lunacy. 
Like they're talking about the most absurd conspiracy theories. They are making up lies about elections being stolen. There's Jewish space lasers being thrown around. I mean, it's nuts. And so just say it, right? I think that there's so many things where we tie ourselves into knots trying to beat people on facts that we lose sight of the of, of the very, very important political message that most voters do not have deep facts when they go to the polls. Yeah. They have impressions. Right. Yeah, and I think that has been problematic for Biden, mainly because of the age discourse these days where, you know, I think there's a, and this has come through in some of the polling where people just think he's too old to, to run again. I mean, granted, Trump's only, I think, four years younger and age really shouldn't be a determinative factor. But, you know, it gets back to how a lot of voters kind of operate more on vibes or uh, broad perceptions than they do, you know, policy or a working knowledge of the facts. Um, I mean, I actually, I a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I learned this lesson on the campaign trail. I mean, I, so one of my, I was briefly deputy campaign manager before that I was policy director. And that meant that I was drafting, uh, you know, sort of the five point or 10 point plans. And this was in 2010. So admittedly, it's a little bit less digital campaigning, but still like we put all the policy platforms online. Um, you know, I worked all this time. I like shopped them around to the various interest groups to sort of see like, what do, what do the teachers think about our education plan? What do the school boards think about our education plan? This sort of stuff, right? Got feedback worked on it for ages. We could see how many times they were downloaded. And I think the education plan, if my memory serves correct, correctly, was downloaded something like 49 times. Okay. We got over a million votes or around a million votes in the election. And when I talked to people, I, part of my job was also going out in parades, right? I mean, it's like I, any campaign staff, this is what you do. Fourth of July, everyone is doing parades. And so you talk to people and you say things like, you know, why they'd say, we're, come, we're, we're voting for you. And you say, great, you know, what, what caused you to change your mind or what caused you to vote, uh, to, to decide to vote for us? And the, the answers were about his character, honestly. I mean, it was a situation where it was like, we think he's a good guy. We think he's, he means well. We think he's going to help us. Um, nobody ever said, because you're proposing to change this tax break, right? Or ta tax right. loophole. Now, there, there are voters like that, but there, there are a lot fewer. Mm -hmm. And you have to have both. You have to have a good policy that will actually change people's lives. And you have to have a good impression that is simple and easy to um, sort of convey to to voters who are not like us, you know, living and breathing politics. The, 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 the other core point that I'd just like to, to say briefly is mm -hmm. people like us, people who watch your show, people who read substacks about politics, people who talk about politics professionally are extremely weird. And I don't mean it in a mean way. <laughs> I mean, we're extremely unusual, right? Like we're, we're so different from the average person, not because we're better or worse, just because we have a niche interest. And the average person doesn't want to think about politics. So, you know, you have to make it really, really uh, clear what you stand for in, in a soundbite. And, and I think Democrats continually fall down on that. Sure. Uh, exit question for you. Um, I'm assuming being an American in the UK and being a political scientist that people want to talk American politics with you quite a bit. What are those conversations like? Um, are people horrified that Trump remains a factor on the scene? Um, you know, Biden recently had a trip to the UK where he was, you know, the reception that he got was just unbelievable at, at the various uh, stops that he made on this trip. So I'm assuming that Biden is a pretty popular figure over there. But, you know, just broadly, what are people saying about US politics to you these days? What are those conversations like? Yeah, I mean, people have a, a relatively thin knowledge of American politics that sure. a lot of people, um, you know, they, they get the news stories. I mean, today, for example, the lead story in the BBC was about Trump being found liable for sexual assault and so on. So it's not like they're they're not interested. Um, but I would say that the sort of tropes, 
that have crossed the Atlantic is that Biden is too old. You know, make of it what you will. It's what I hear a lot. And Trump is insane um, and dangerous. So people absolutely favor Biden. Um, This is not close, right? I mean, people would overwhelmingly vote for Biden in Britain uh, versus Trump. Trump had something like, depending on the poll, something between an eight and 20% likability score in the UK. I mean, Obama was the mirror image. Biden's pretty high. Um, Respectability of the US under Biden has rebounded to Obama levels whereas it was disastrously low um, in, in, uh, in, in the Trump era. Uh, the, the things that I would say is the gun stuff is, is killing the perception of the United States abroad. Um, hmm. I can't tell you how in the last couple of years, I've had colleagues I'm talking about in academia who will refuse to give talks at American universities because they're scared of being shot. I mean, whether that's rational hmm. or not, that's, that's the perception. Um, the, the mass shootings are really, really hurting us. Um, because it's how people see America. They see us as the prism of sort of Trump plus guns. Uh, it's really cut through in, in a way that was different 10 years ago, um, you know, 11 years ago when I moved to the UK. So that, that that's very worrisome. And I think it's something where, um, you know, it, it's just, it's the other thing where I am just so clear-eyed about this because um, I never think about guns. I mean, I, I've written about this in my yeah. Substack as well. And, and I just... I never think about them. There's there's been one mass casualty mass shooting in the in the eleven and a half years I've lived in the UK, and four people were or five people were killed, um, and and that was it. That was the worst mass shooting of the entire time I've lived here, and it's just not a problem. And it's just gun laws. It's literally that that simple. Yeah. It's just gun laws. Um, You're so, reminding me. I- I don't know yeah. if you re- you recall that when Trump was president, one of his um, and I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but one of his deflections from the gun problem we have here was the alleged mass stabbings that would take place in London. Um, what was that all about? There was like a brief, there was kind of a, a, a crime wave in London where people were getting stabbed. Um, but, you know, of course it wasn't anything on the scale of gun violence in the U S but I do remember Trump bringing that up that, you know, well, what about people getting stabbed in London sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, this, so this is why I wrote this, uh, this Substack piece about guns is because I always, every time I, uh, a mass shooting happens, I post something on Twitter about the comparisons between the UK and the US, just to show how crazy the differences are. So, you know, in 2020, there's 20,000 gun homicides in the US. On average in the UK, it's about 35 a year, right? So it's not even close. And, and the UK population is only one fifth of the U- US. So it's like very, very different. Um, but then you always get these answers back. like, Oh, you just have stabbings instead, or you just have terrorism instead. And it's like, okay, look, all the terrorism that's happened since I've lived here uh, has had fewer deaths than the single Vegas mass shooting that happened in 2017. The yeah. UK knife crime rate is lower than the American knife crime rate. So there's more stabbings in America. You just never hear about them because so many more guns are being used to kill people. Um, and on top of this, London is an incredibly safe city. It's it's safer than pretty much every major American city. I mean, I think every major American city. Um, so it's just a lie, you know, but it's the way to deflect yeah. it. It's, and, and the reason why this became prominent in right-wing circles is because relative to the UK's very low levels of violence, there was a brief uptick, uh, you know, of, of, of knife crime in London, still way lower than American knife crime. And there's nothing, I mean, there is almost no gun murders. So yeah. these things, this is, this speaks to the political schema though, because every time I post this, I get the exact same responses and it's like comical. I wrote a piece on Substack that goes through all these responses and debunks them one by one. And every time I post that piece, the comments are literally the exact points. 
And I have to say, please just click on it. It debunks everything that you've been told that's a lie, right? But the schema sticks. And every time the UK comes up when it comes to guns, everybody talks about stabbings and you can't get through to these people. It's just, you know, data doesn't matter. It's just sort of an impression they have. And and now those replies are at the top of your feed with the uh, the new Twitter blue and verification. So you have to see them uh, up top every time. I've noticed exactly. that too, where I, I, I don't even look at my mentions these days because um, <laughs> they're worse than they ever have been. So yeah. thank you, Brian. I really appreciate your time and you sharing your insights. Um, anything you want to plug on the way out, your Substack or Twitter, anything else? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the, the Substack is called The Garden of Forking Paths. It's www.forkingpaths.co. Uh, I've got a piece coming out on Friday. Uh, where I sort of take issue with the idea of polarization and say that the real problem is something called knowingness, which is where everybody, and this is particularly true in the Trump cult, thinks they already know things that they absolutely do not know. And that's more of a problem than them disagreeing with us on values. It's more that they cannot be persuaded by actual uh, facts and logic. Well, check that out. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for today's episode of the Aaron Rupar Show. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also follow me on YouTube to watch the footage of the show each week. You can find me there at the Aaron Rupar show. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So be sure to check out your feeds each week for a new installment of the show. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.